Hey, I, uh, my name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here. It is an immense joy to be up here to share God's word with you. And also it comes with its fair share of anxiety. <laughs> I feel it every single time I come up here, every single time. But I'm told that's normal. So today we're going to be jumping into Luke chapter 17. And it talks all about forgiveness. Jesus is teaching us specifically how we are to forgive other people. And as I was like spending time preparing this weekend, I hit like writer's block. I hit some writer's block for a while, mostly because of the anxiety I was feeling. I was like, Lord, what do I, what do I even say? And as I was just sitting there in my <clears throat> living room, looking out the window, I felt like the Lord is reminding me of how much I have been forgiven. He was reminding me, hey, Carl, you are blessed to be forgiven. I have sinned countless, countless times, every time offending my loving, holy God. And yet, because of my faith in him, I'm forgiven. That is a huge, huge blessing. And it reminded me of something I heard when I was a little kid. When I heard a pastor preach one time on this passage or something similar. He was talking about how Paul, in some of his epistle letters, says, I am the chief of sinners. I am the utmost of sinners. I'm the sinner of sinners. And I remember when I was a kid listening to this, I was like, geez, Paul, what are you into, man? What are you caught up in? <laughs> and I was just like, whoa, that is crazy. And then the pastor said, and I echo what Paul says, I am the sinner of sinners. And I was like, no, pastor, really? I was like, you are the sinner of sinners? And now more and more, I feel like I relate with that statement. The more I live, the longer I live, the longer I walk in my faith, the more I feel like I can identify with that statement. I feel like the sinner of sinners oftentimes. And man, that just makes me feel all the more blessed that I'm forgiven. That we are forgiven because of our faith in Jesus. We are so blessed. And so would you guys just pray with me before we hop in? Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. I thank you for what you have accomplished for us in Jesus. Just as that song was singing, hallelujah for the cross, Lord. Thank you. I thank you that we are forgiven, that we can stand before you with confidence. I thank you, Lord, that our sin has literally been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Thank you. I pray, Lord, that that reality would set in for us this morning. We all know those words. We've heard them so many times. We've read them. We've studied them. But Lord, would they sink in? Would they make that two-foot journey from our head to our heart this morning? God, I pray that you'd give us great hope, great faith in your forgiveness. And just, just as a family, God, we want to come before you recognizing, man, life is messy. We mess up all the time. We are so lacking and we struggle. And just as a family, God, we, want to, we just want to acknowledge our need of you this morning. 
I want to acknowledge my need of you this morning. And so I thank you, Lord. I thank you that you love us, that you have forgiven us. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak your word today. Would you move in our hearts through your word? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's hop right in. Luke 17, verses 1 and 2. In a little bit of verse 3, it says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Actually, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. When I read that, I was like, whoa, Jesus, that is, that is like serious. That is very, very serious. It kind of sobered me up a little bit. But let's retrace through that. The first thing I want to point out is actually a little bit of a breath of fresh air. The first thing that Jesus says. The first thing he says is temptations to sin are sure to come. Temptations to sin are sure to come. Jesus here is speaking from experience. Remember, he was fully God and he was fully man. He lived a life much like us. He experienced temptation. He experienced it, but without sin. And so Jesus experienced temptation. He knew that it would come. And he's saying, hey, guys, don't be surprised when you experience temptation. Don't be surprised. I don't know about you guys, but I've had times in my life when I've been so mad and so frustrated at myself when I experience temptation in my head. Like when temptation enters my mind, I have absolutely beat myself up. Like, why am I still being tempted by this? Why am I still like being tempted to this sin or to that sin? Why? I thought I was going to be over it. But here Jesus is saying, hey, don't be surprised. Don't waste your energy beating yourself up when you experience temptation. It's going to come. And actually, what God's word says when we, when we look at it, we actually have three enemies constantly tempting us to sin. Not just one. We've got three. The first one is the world. The world, the culture all around us in man. When we look at the culture, it is tempting us to sin whether they're trying to sell something to you or whatever, they are tempting us to sin all around us. And we all carry around phones in our pockets, a direct link to this world, to this culture, to these temptations. So that's our first enemy. It's all around us. We can't escape it. The second one, the second enemy we have is our flesh. I'm wearing mine this morning. Are you guys? Like that enemy is part of us. Because of our fallen nature, we are constantly desiring and tempted to sin because of our flesh. And we can't escape our flesh. It's something we carry with us until our last day. And so our second enemy, we can't leave behind. It is with us all the time. And the third one is Satan and his minions. 
And that enemy, they're whispering lies all the time. They're specifically trying to get you to sin so that they then can make you vulnerable to lies about who you are and who God is. They're constantly trying to get us to a place where we are not confident in God, in his love for us. And the thing with that enemy is we can't even see them. They're invisible. (laughs) We can't fight that enemy very effectively. We don't even see them. And so we have three enemies constantly tempting us to sin. So Jesus is saying, hey, don't be surprised. And with his next statement, woe to the one through whom temptation comes. What he's saying is don't become the fourth cause of temptation. We already have three enemies Don't become the fourth for a brother or a sister. And what this verse did for me is it made me recognize that sin isn't just like a private, personal ordeal. Because I think of a lot of us, we know what sins that we struggle with. We know we're aware of them. We're fighting them. We're praying for help. We're talking to our friends about it, asking for help for our personal sin struggles. But here Jesus is saying, hey, we not only need to be aware of our own sin and our own experience with temptation, but we also need to consider how we are acting and how that might be affecting the people around us. Am I causing other people to experience temptation? Am I causing other people to stumble? That is something Jesus would have us consider And at first, I was a little bit offended by that. I was like, Jesus, like, how about I take care of me and they take care of them? They deal with their sin, I'll deal with mine. And here Jesus is saying, that's not how it works in the family of God. That as a family, we love one another. We care about one another. We want to help one another fight against temptation. And so Jesus is calling us to consider, hey, Am I being a stumbling block? Am I being the fourth source of temptation? And he offers a very sobering rebuke here, or a very sobering warning. It would be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were cast into the sea. That is kind of a crazy picture to me. I went to, I had just the amazing opportunity to go to Israel with some of you guys a couple summers ago, and we got to see a millstone. We got to see like an old fashioned mill and it's this great big stone about this big. It's like this wide. It is huge. And a donkey walks around and pulls that thing as it rolls over grain. It makes flour. Those stones, and this is like a conservative guess. This is just my, you know, my guess at it. It's like a thousand pounds to a ton probably. It is heavy. And so the picture that Jesus is painting is just like, what? Like, obviously, you would stand no chance if that was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. And he's saying that's better than causing other people to experience more temptation. That that is actually better. That's crazy to me. These words here, when he says, pay attention to yourselves, all these first two and a half verses, they really made me recognize that sin is serious. Sin is so serious. 
And the bummer about that is I think a lot of times the world, the culture, they're trying to pull out the seriousness of sin. They're trying to make it seem like not big of a deal. The world has always done that. But the big bummer is now like in cultural American Christianity, we're trying to make sin not that big of a deal. We're trying to sweep over it to make it more easy to receive the gospel, to come sit in a church, maybe to increase numbers. But that's just not true. Sin is serious. Whether we believe it or not, sin is serious. It has serious, devastating effects on our lives. The enemy wants to use sin, like I said, to make us believe wrongly about us and about God. That is why sin is such a big deal. And so we need to hold two realities that we see in scripture. We need to hold to them, both of them in tandem. And the first reality is the serious destructive nature of sin. We need to hold to that. That is real. And at the same time, as Christians, we must hold to the restorative power of God's grace at the same time, not just one or the other. And I find that oftentimes we do pick one or the other and both of them to our detriment. The first one, if we just hold on to the serious nature of sin and kind of make little of God's grace, we find ourselves in this place like, woe is me. I am so bad, I am so evil, I sin so much, God could never love me. I know what it says in scripture, I know it says that I'm forgiven, I, but I, you don't know how I've sinned. You don't know how bad and evil I am. That's what happens when we just hold on to the sin piece. And it limits our relationship with God to simply begging for forgiveness. That is not all that our relationship with God is supposed to be. It's supposed to be much, much bigger than that. Our relationship with God is called to be huge. We're, we can walk with him throughout our day. We can delight in him. We can experience his delight in us. We get to worship him, experience joy, get, glean wisdom from him. It is supposed to be so diverse, but sometimes I feel like it's easy for us to just limit our relationship with God and allow it to be defined by our most recent sin. And so the other avenue is when you make little of sin and you talk a lot just about God's grace. And oftentimes I find that people who do this, they get stuck in sin. They get stuck in it. They, they have this mindset that, oh, you know what? God is going to forgive me. And I've tried to quit this sin, but, you know, it's just, it's too hard. It creates too much conflict in my life, and I don't want that. So I'm just going to keep going, and I know that God's going to forgive me. And they just keep getting stuck in sin. And the bummer about that one is they are subjecting themselves to the destructive power of sin. And oftentimes, over and over and over again, as they sin, the devil and Satan is able to speak lies into their life about who they are and about who God is. And oftentimes, I find that people walk away from the Lord with this bent because 
it gets so twisted in their heads. It's, you can't win either way. It reminds me of Romans 6.1. Should we keep sinning that grace may abound? By no means. And so church, we need to hold both of these realities in tandem. And just in my personal life, recognizing the reality of the destructive nature of sin, that has made me hate sin in a really good way. Recognizing its destructive power has made me hate sin. And let me clarify, it does not make me hate sinners. And I think a lot of times that can get conflated. If anything, the more that I've seen the destructive nature of sin, the more that I've hated it, the more compassion I feel for people who are walking in darkness. Because I know how much they're experiencing the destructive power of sin. When we recognize that, it should give us compassion for people who don't follow Jesus. Because man, they're, they're just going through it. And so holding to that reality has made me hate sin in a really healthy way. And recognizing the reality of the restorative power of grace has just made me love God increasingly. And so we must hold both in tandem. Let's continue on. Verses uh, three and four says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, the first thing I want to say about that first verse is it talks about rebuke. And I just think that rebuke has become a bad word. At least like it feels like it to me. Maybe it's just because I was raised in Minnesota and there's like this passive aggressiveness to our nature. <laughs> I'd rather just keep it inside, keep my frustration inside rather than say anything. But here Jesus is laying out the fact that we're supposed to rebuke. He's saying this is how we do it in the family of God. And so if Jesus says it, we've got to figure out how, how to do it. And specifically, I think some of the reasons why it's a bad word in my mind is because of all these assumptions I have that surround rebuke. Specifically, I have this assumption that it's like aggressive, that it's like pinning somebody down so that they have no room to wiggle out. Because man, when we're confronted about stuff, we love to wiggle. At least I do. <laughs> And so I have that preconceived notion about it. And I'm like, oh man, that makes me so uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to do that. But in reality, I think rebuke is a little bit different than that. What we see here in this, in this small little statement that Jesus makes is that rebuke is part of the path to forgiveness and restored relationship. It's part of the path. And the path goes like this. Somebody sins and they don't apologize for it. You rebuke them. They have an opportunity to repent, and when they do, you forgive them. And so that paints a very different picture of rebuke to me. Rebuke isn't judgment. It's not bringing judgment on someone, it's bringing awareness. 
Sometimes people don't even know how they're sinning. Sometimes people don't even know how they're like tempting other people. It's bringing awareness. And when we do it, we're called to do it in a Jesus way. And the way that I like to think about that is in terms of the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, all of those things must go into how we rebuke. That paints a very different picture. Gentleness is even in there. And so we're called to rebuke in that way. Another thing I'll say about rebuke is, I think it's important for us to ask the question, maybe this is just for me, but it's important to ask the question, okay, should I rebuke or not? Is this a sin or am I just really annoyed? Because <laughs> if we're just like annoyed at something about somebody, that's not a good reason to bring rebuke. Rebuke follows sin. And so the last thing I'll say about that is like, when we rebuke, it's important that we're not acting like a Jonah. Remember, God sent him to the Ninevites and Jonah goes and he gives the lamest sermon and just says, hey, repent or else. And you know what happens? They repent. Like they actually repent and Jonah's upset about it. He's like, why did you guys turn from your sin? I was, I'm actually like really upset about it. I wanted to continue judging you. And so whenever we bring a rebuke, it shouldn't be from a place of judgment. It shouldn't even be from a place of anger. It should be from a place of desiring to leverage forgiveness, desiring to restore the relationship. That's what it's like in the family of God. And so verse four, Jesus says, if you for, yeah, if, if he sins against you, if your brother sins against you seven times in the day and repent seven times, you must forgive him. And the first time I heard that, I was like, seven times. That's not that much. I think I can do that. <laughs> but then I actually like sat down and I was like, okay, one day I'm awake for like 16 hours. If someone sins against me in the same way, seven times, I'm going to be really annoyed. <laughs> like I'm going to be really, really upset. Like by the second time, I'm going to be like, dude, this, we just talked about this. Like, I just forgave you. Like, what is going on? So seven times in my mind, I'm like, hold on, Jesus. Did, how is that going to work? Forgive how many times? And I don't think it's about the number here, right? In other places, when Jesus is asked about forgiveness, he says 70 times seven. 70 times seven. And I've heard this passage preached before and like somebody's, like the preacher said, hey, yeah, like they have to be your brother for this to work. Like, you know, they have to be your brother. They have to sin against you. They have to repent in the right way and then you forgive them. And I feel like that's missing the heart of the passage. I feel like that, if anything, is limiting our forgiveness. And here it is, it should be obvious to us that Jesus is broadening how we are to forgive. He's expanding it. He wants us to walk away from this passage and say, wow, I need to, I need to forgive more. Wow, Lord, I, I need help with forgiveness. And so I just, the reason why I think this rubs me so wrong, and I think I said this a little earlier, is I'm like, is this going to be wise? Like, is this helpful with me forgiving them seven times, will anything change? That's not the way that I would do it. 
I feel like I would tend to hold my forgiveness back until somebody does it my way. And then it's like, okay, now I'll forgive. It's really interesting. God, how is this supposed to work? I don't know if this is wise. And it just had me asking this question, Lord, why is forgiveness so important? Why is it so important to you that you would have us do it and allow people to continue to sin against us, that we may continue to leverage forgiveness on their behalf? Why is it that important? I grew up um, up in the Twin Cities. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And I remember growing up at first, before my brother came along, my sister and I were best friends. We were pals, we would run around. And I got to an age where I was just like super hyper. I was just that kid. I was like getting into all sorts of trouble, like running around, banging my head on things. I was, I was like really rambunctious, but not like the big rough and tumble kind of kids. I was like the small little wiry kid that had like an endless motor. <laughs> and so I remember that I got to an age where I just wanted to like wrestle and fight. And I just couldn't do that with my sister. If I hit her, I'd get in trouble. And so when my brother came along, I was so excited because I was like, oh, yeah. Now we can wrestle. Now we can fight. And he was two years younger than me and quite a bit smaller. So that didn't work out that well. I would just wrestle with him and he would cry and get upset. But there, as we got older, I started to recognize something really cool about my brother, about my brother Sam. He was really creative and a lot more gentle than me. And when we would play with Legos, he would spend so much time crafting this huge tower or this spaceship. And he would like talk to me about why he did this or that. But for me, I was just trying to throw together a spaceship so I could throw it down the stairs. <laughs> like I was like, come on, first flight. Like, <laughs> but every once in a while, I would sometimes unintentionally break his toys, sometimes intentionally, just because I was that kind of kid. And it would make my brother upset. Sometimes he would cry. But the cool thing about Sam is he was really, really quick to forgive me. Like even right after I would do it, he'd be like, oh. And I'm like, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't go tell mom, don't tell mom. <laughs> like that was the reason why I was apologizing. But he would say, no, no, it's, it's okay. And it, I, I have these distinct memories of him saying, it's okay. And I was just shocked by that. And I think the reason Sam was so quick to forgive is because he recognized something about forgiveness. That without forgiveness, playtime ends. And I think a little bit more presently for us as adults, without forgiveness, eventually relationships end. And I'm sure all of us have seen that in our lives. Even our closest relationships, we are so in need of forgiveness. And that is the heart of God. Forgiveness is so essential to the character of God. Like, I mean, just think about it all throughout the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God is demonstrating this radical love over and over and over again. I mean, just think about the Israelites, right? Man, we love to pick on them. They were just so hot and cold in their relationship with God. God was to be their only God. So what did they do? They picked up idols all the time, left and right. 
And for generations, they would run from God. They would run to other idols. But then a generation would come along and they would say, God, we are sorry. We are sinners. We have messed up. Forgive us. And you know what God did? He forgave them. He restored them. He even blessed them. That is crazy that he would do that. I mean, think about the Ninevites. We talked about that a little bit earlier. They were bad, bad sinners. It was, they were like the utmost of sinners. And if you've ever seen the VeggieTales movie, they were slapping people with fish. It was crazy. Like, how does sin get worse than that? But in reality, maybe they were doing that. I don't know. But they were sinning over and over again. They were known for their boisterous sinning. Jesus, or sorry, God sends Jonah to offer a a rebuke, a chance to repent, and they do. And God forgives them. God forgave them. And I think even more powerfully than that, something that blows my mind is that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, looking at the men who spat on him, who beat him, who accused him wrongly, He said to the father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The heart of God is forgiveness. God leverages so much forgiveness on our behalf. And even for us in this room today, presently, the same is true. If you are breathing, God has given you another chance. He's extending forgiveness. He's extending forgiveness an invitation to relationship with him. That is the heart of God. And so why is forgiveness so important? Because God does it. And as his children, he's calling us to reflect his image, to bear his image well. And so we're called to forgive. Let's continue on. Luke 17, five and six. The apostles said to the Lord, Oh, increase our faith. And the Lord said, guys, if you had this much faith, the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The disciples here, they're just complaining. They're absolutely complaining. They hear Jesus say, hey, forgive seven times. And they're like, that's not going to work, Lord. Like, oh. And essentially the way they say this, increase our faith. They're like, God, I know you're right, but I don't believe it. (laughs) Have you ever had a moment like that? Like where you're like, God, I know you're God. I know you know everything. And I know you're right. I just don't believe it right now. That is where the disciples found themselves. And I'll just commend them for one thing. That... They were honest. They were really honest about their faith. And I think that is so important. I know that for our day and age, we really value image. And our culture really values image. And it's so easy for us to kind of like hide away those like not so good part of ourselves. I feel like I do that all the time. And I think it's easy for us to carry that over sometimes into our relationship with God. 
that, man, we feel like we need to hide those things from him, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They hid. And I just want to encourage you today to be like the disciples. Be honest about your faith. If you are struggling with something that you come across in God's word, be honest with him about it. Say, Lord, I, I know you're right, but I don't believe it right now. Please help me believe it. Help me to understand this. Would your spirit work in my mind and in my heart? Would you help me? Would you orchestrate the events of my life to help me believe this? Because I know you're right. Another thing I'll say is even though the disciples were complaining, they were right about one thing, that it does take faith to forgive the way that Jesus would have us. It does take faith. We can't do that by ourselves. We definitely cannot do that. I can't. And I think specifically it takes faith in two ways. Number one, the faith that Jesus is king and he has commanded us to forgive. I think that is so vital that when we recognize that forgiveness isn't just a good idea. Forgiveness is a command from our king. That really changes how I interact with it. And secondly, it takes faith that doing things Jesus' way leads to the results that he wants, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Even when it doesn't make sense to us. It might not lead to the results that we want, but it leads to the results that he wants. We need to have that kind of faith. And so faith, what do we know about faith from the Bible? It comes from God. And presently, like if we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God has given us faith. He has given you faith. And now we get to choose if we're going to walk by faith or by sight. That is the tension that we presently experience. Am I going to walk in faith following all that Jesus commanded me to do, even when it doesn't make sense? Or am I going to walk by what just makes sense to me in the moment, not considering what God would have me do? And so I think the way that we can grow in our faith is through interacting with Jesus and allowing our faith to play out in our imagination. And what do I mean by that? Specifically, one thing I'll, I'll just say is, even if you don't consider yourself an imaginative person or a creative person, you use your imagination all the time. We use it every day when we're thinking about what we're going to do that day, when we're thinking about what we're going to do the next day. When we're, like for me specifically, sometimes I use my imagination in a, in a bad way, I think. Like when I'm having a really stressful day at work, I'm like, man, what would it be like to be super wealthy and not have to work? <laughs> And man, I can spin that one for hours. <laughs> we use our imaginations all the time. And God gave us our imagination for a reason. This idea isn't for me. It's from a pastor. His name is Erwin uh, McManus. I don't know much about him. But he says that faith is played out and strengthened in our imagination. Now, specifically, we can apply it to the situation with the, the disciples. What they said to the Lord is, oh, Lord, I can't imagine that you would give me what I need to forgive someone seven times in a day. I can't imagine that. 
But the way that we can play it out in our imagination and strengthen our faith and exercise our faith is actually saying, Lord, I know you're right. I know that you want to give me what I need to be obedient to you. And so, Lord, how, can, how could I do that? How could I go about forgiving someone seven times for the same sin in one day? What would I say to them? How quickly would I come to you in prayer? Hopefully really fast. God, what would I ask you for? How would I, how would I display your character to them? That is a way that we can play out our faith using our imagination. I think that is a really honorable way to use our imagination for God. And so I would also just say, don't just use your imagination to think about how you would forgive. But I think even more powerful than that, use your imagination and just like creatively thinking about how much you've been forgiven. Dwell on that, to use another term. Meditate on that, to use another. Spend time thinking about how much you have been forgiven, not feeling guilty because of that, but feeling so incredibly loved by God because of that. My encouragement is that we would join with our brothers and sisters throughout the centuries, brothers and sisters of faith who have made it a habit to just sit and dwell and put themselves on the Mount of Calvary, sitting before the cross. And as Chad has said it before, rubbing your face on the rough wood of the cross. That is something that believers have done for centuries. And I would encourage you to do the same. Stand before the cross. Look on him. Recognize all of our sins are on him. And to put numbers to it, billions and billions of sins forgiven. Not just seven. And so, if you have faith, Jesus is saying, when he's saying, hey, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, he's not just saying like a little faith. He's saying, if you even had it, if you were walking in your faith, it will empower you to forgive. So if we have faith like this, we can forgive. Jesus has one more thing to say about forgiveness. And I thought it was really interesting the first time I read it. It's a little parable. And it says this, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping the sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, hey, recline at table? No. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and then after all that is done, you can go eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? No. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, will say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And the first time I read that, to be honest, I was rubbed a little bit the wrong way. And I think, I think a big reason is because I'm reading this from an American context. And to me, when I read this and I read about servants, I'm just like, man, that is so unfair. 
He's working all day. He comes in from the field. He's serving even more at home. These guys need to unionize. Come on, get eight-hour work days and a fair wage. Like that. <laughs> but I think in order to understand the heart of this passage, we kind of need to let that go for a moment. Like I'm not saying that those things are wrong. I'm just saying we need to let that go to see what Jesus is really saying. What he's saying here, if we retrace through this, is servants serve during the day. All day long they serve. Servants serve at night when they come home. They continue to serve. They're not even thanked for it, and they don't even expect it. And when they're done with their work, they say, hey, we're unworthy servants. We just, we just did what we were commanded. There's a specific attitude about it with those servants. What Jesus is saying here, I think, is servants serve with an intensity. And in the same way, Christians are to forgive with an intensity. Just as servants serve all day and then come home and serve all night without any thanks, he's saying Christians, we should forgive all day at work. And then when we come home, forgive all night as an expectation. If you think about it, what is a servant that doesn't serve? Unemployed, right? And so in the same way, Christians are called to forgive with that same intensity. It is core to our identity, just as serving is to a servant. Christians are called to forgive. And I think what Jesus is saying here, it's pretty simple. Like, hey, forgiving is baseline. It is baseline for Christians. Just like serving is baseline for servants. Same with forgiveness. Forgiveness is baseline for Christians. This is just the beginning. This is the very beginning of what God wants to do in our lives. And so I think another thing that Jesus is saying here is that we can't accept Jesus' forgiveness and then withhold forgiveness from other people. We can't just receive it and then not give it. That is incongruent with receiving the forgiveness of Christ because the forgiveness of Jesus transforms us. It makes us more and more see him as king, follow his commandments, experience the joy therein. And for those of you who have experienced radical forgiveness, there is so much joy to be had in forgiveness in Jesus' way. And so I want to invite the band to come up. <clears throat> but if you struggle with forgiveness sometimes, or let me rephrase that, the next time you're struggling to forgive... <laughs> I want to encourage you to spend some time dwelling on how extravagantly you've been forgiven. Just to revisit that point. I think that is the most powerful way that can empower us to forgive the Jesus way, is recognizing how much we've been forgiven. And this weekend, I was practicing this. I want to practice what I preach. And I was spending some time on the Mount of Calvary at the foot of the cross. And to be honest, at first, I was just like, I'm here. <laughs> you know, now what? Started thinking about Netflix or whatever. Man, entertainment, really, it's a trap. That's another sermon. But 
I was sitting at the foot of the cross and it took me a while to get present. And I was just sitting there praying and I was like, all right, Lord, like, what do you, what do you have for me here? Like, how, how could you help me to forgive more? And it was just a very simple thought and that popped into my head, just that we would not be able to have relationship with, with God without forgiveness. We would not. We wouldn't be able to pray. And man, prayer is slept on, you guys. We get to talk with the creator of the universe. We get to ask him for help. We get to experience his delight as we go throughout our day. And it was just a simple thought. Hey, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to experience this without forgiveness. The only reason we have this privilege is because God extended forgiveness to us. And he continues to. And if you're like me, it's more than seven times a day. So I just want to encourage you, spend some time there. Spend some time with the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you have forgiven us with an extravagance. Thank you for that, Lord. I know so often it, I just, I recognize that reality with apathy or just oh, whatever. Yeah, I know that's true. Next. But Lord, I pray that you would bless us with a deep, profound appreciation for your forgiveness. God, would you help us to slow down, to spend some time with you, to try new things, to try to get ourselves before you on the cross. And I pray, Lord, that as we do that as a church, as a family, that you would speak to us, that you'd move. Would you awaken the realities that we see in Scripture? And would you help us, God, to more and more walk in your ways? We love you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.